Amen. Well, it's good. Good morning. It's great to be with you. And it was really cool to see Ryan up on the screen. I'm actually really, it's kind of cool to actually have a team from San Diego you're proud of. It's doing well. Wow. Wow. Now, best of luck to them. Their game is later today. Uh, my name is Matt, and I get to serve on staff here as our young adults pastor. I also oversee our life groups. And it's just a privilege to be able to share with you today, to preach and to be here. I think before we get into this morning, back into Philippians, uh, I don't know about you, but man, yesterday was hard. It was uh, the things going on in Charlottesville that I, the, the scenes that were unfolding there, I just, I feel like I had, and I have, a, such a heavy heart, um, and just anger too, just all of the hatred, and all of the, this, the ugliness, and it's all, to me, it's an, in, all of the racism, and all of that stuff, it's an antithesis of the gospel. It's the antithesis of, of, of Jesus, who has, who has love for all, but I just noticed like yesterday as I was watching some of those things happen, it's just a stark reminder that we live in a broken world with broken people, us included. And it was a stark reminder of our need for a savior, our need for a rescuer. But I think it's also important for us to be clear that, and for the church to decry that the evil of racism or any race that claims supremacy. We need to stand firm in truth and in love and also trust the power of the cross to change hearts. That's the only solution is God is going to, he has to intervene and we need to remember that really supremacy only belongs to one person and he wasn't even white. Belongs to one person, Jesus Christ, and Jesus came and he made himself a servant of all people groups. And so our, our hope is in him. And so let's keep praying and let's keep trusting God. And uh, yeah, just wanted to make sure we said something about that. This morning, uh, I'm looking forward to going in, continuing in our series in Philippians. Uh, and today we get to cover a section of Philippians that contains probably the most famous Bible verse and probably most misquoted verse in the entire New Testament. Philippians 4.13 is what I'm talking about, of course. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, Philippians 4.13, it's actually in the top 10 most highlighted verse, verses in version the Bible app. It's in the top 10. And yet it is the most misinterpreted, one of the most misinterpreted verses of all time. Yes, Philippians 4.13 is also, it's inspirational, is it? You know, it's been used at the free throw line in basketball games. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me right now. It's been used at the Olympics. Someone told me it's tattooed on uh, one of the one of the greatest UFC fighters. It's like, he's got a tattoo of Philippians 4.13 on him. It's even been written under the eyes of certain uh, football players. And what's cool about Philippians 4.13 is actually it's been used, it's been really good for business as well. I mean, just type in uh, Philippians 4.13 into the search bar on Amazon. 
It's great. Look what you got. We got bracelets, <laughs> necklaces, shirts. Dog, yeah. I even saw, it's not on there, but I saw a, a, a shirt for a dog that says, has Philippians 4.13 written on it. I, I'm not going to judge. If Fluffy needs a reminder that he can do all things through Christ and strength, that, that's cool. You know, but I thought with all of the hype, I was like, what the heck? I'm going to contribute. <laughs> I want to get in on that too. Eat, sleep, Philippians 4.13, repeat. Eat, sleep, Philippians 4.13, repeat. Start rep. Think about it, maybe that should be the title of the sermon, but no. Yeah, so Philippians 4.13, it gets misused a lot. I remember hearing Greg Kokel uh, once say, Never read a Bible verse. Never read a Bible verse. And what he meant, of course, is, of course, is never read just a Bible verse. And, and to just read it out of, out of context. Uh, and so it's important for us today to look at Philippians 4.13 in the context in which it is placed. And so today as we continue our study through Philippians and we look at this section where this coffee mug verse shows up, uh, I think what we're going to see is that Paul is saying something really profound. And I believe that as we understand Philippians 4.13 in its context, that you and I are going to receive such far better and more liberating news than we would expect. So, let's turn on our Bibles or open them to Philippians 4. And just, uh, I want to offer a quick summary of where we're at in Philippians and just kind of the, the, the context there is that Paul, as you've heard, is that he is in prison. And on the surface, things are not going well for the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's getting up there in that age. He's getting up there in age. And he's at that point in life and ministry where you think, okay, I've done a lot of work. I just want to sit back and enjoy the fruits of my labor now. But he can't. He's in prison. He's chained to a Roman guard 24-7, and if that wasn't bad enough, there are people out there who are trashing Paul's name and his reputation. I mean, do you guys have any haters? You ever? I, so I had someone merely comment something uh, negatively, commented on something I posted on Facebook. And I was like, oh, how dare they? Oh. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a softie. But just their negative comment made me feel like they were attacking my character and my reputation. I was like, how dare they say that? So, uh, Paul is experiencing that like times a thousand. And because he's in prison, there's really nothing that he can do about it. There's nothing. And also, the Philippian church, which Paul had planted, they had begun to go through this intense persecution. And so you got to think, like, Paul, he's, he's hearing about his friends in persecution, and he wants to, to go and to encourage them and to protect them, but he can't. And there, there's also these people who are infiltrating the church and they were, they were spreading a false gospel. And so Paul, he's catching, I mean, think, imagine that he's catching wind of all of these things that are going on and he can't do anything. He's just, he's, he's in prison. And so I'm sure that he would want to have been there to encourage and to protect them. So on the surface, things are not going well for Paul. 
And in the midst of all of this going on, the church in Philippi, which he's writing to, they, he, they learn that he's in prison in Rome, and so they send him help. They send him aid. They send him a little care package. Isn't it great when you get mail from like an actual person? I mean, it feels good when it's like a handwritten letter or note. I feel like all of the mail today, it's just literally people are mailing you stuff saying, here, you throw this away. Here, <laughs> you throw this away. Because I'm, I'm literally taking it out of the mailbox and dumping it in the trash. So it, I think it's great when someone remembers you. And so they remembered Paul. And the book of Philippians really is Paul writing one long thank you letter. One long thank you letter to his friends who sent help his way. And Paul, hearing of everything that they had been going through, all of their circumstances, the persecution, the relational rifts that were forming, all of that, he uses his thank you letter to encourage them to rejoice in God in the midst of their circumstances. And I believe that his words to them are also meant for us today. Because all of us here at some level are going through a difficult time. We're facing a difficult situation. We're facing relational tension at home, at work, with the kids, with our parents, with our friends. Many of us here this morning are feeling lost or lonely due to circumstances that are just out of our control. Or maybe they're not. Maybe, maybe things are going fairly well for you. You're just in a nice, sweet season of life. But if we're being honest, all of us have fears about what the future might bring. I mean, as good as things are going right now for each of us, we're each, each of us is only one phone call away from tragedy. Our circumstances shift. They change. They did for Paul, and they do for us. And it's into that reality, into this reality, that Paul writes this letter to his friends, the church in Philippi, and to us today. And so let's turn to chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 10 through 13. And if you would mind, let's stand for the reading of God's word together. Verse 10, Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last... You have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. Any and any of the, uh, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Father, I pray this morning you would speak to us. Lord, I've heard, uh, I've heard a lot of sermons. I've heard a lot of talks and read books and all these things about being content. And yet, I still struggle with it so much. Lord, what that tells me is that unless you, unless you show up, unless you help us to understand this, unless you speak directly to us, Lord, nothing that I say is going to make a difference anyways. So Holy Spirit, we, we pray that you would, you would open our hearts, our minds right now in this place to see, to savor the love that you have for us and the enoughness of Jesus this morning. 
pray this in your name. Amen. Maybe seated. So the Apostle Paul in this section is actually, he's actually doing something that to me feels very awkward. Paul, he's trying to do that awkward thing where he's saying, thank you for your gift. Thank you so much, but I didn't actually need it. I mean, I don't know about you, but that feels kind of rude. You know, if I, have a, if I just gave you a gift, here's what I want you to say, okay? I want you to say, dude, your gift was amazing. Your gift changed my life. I never thought in like a thousand years I would ever be so blessed to have received this gift from you. Thank you so much. I mean, that's what I would like for you to say. That would feel nice. You know, a few years ago, I was super obsessed with strength finders. Uh, any strength finders people out there? Okay. Okay, I'm still obsessed. But strength finders, and I, I went and I bought every everyone I could, a copy of Strength Finders. It's a book, you read it, it tells you about, it tells about, talks about strengths, there's a code in the back, and you go online, you take in a little assessment, and you find out what your strengths are. And so I was like, I'm helping everybody out. I'm helping you get to know yourself. You're, you're welcome. And so a couple years go by, and a few years later, I'm helping a friend move, and I see a box of books that they've decided to throw away. And I'm looking through the books, and guess what I found? Strength finders. <laughs> and that, that's fine, but here's the thing. The code in the back hadn't even been used. So literally it was like them saying, they did not need my gift at all. So I took it back. <laughs> Gave it to someone else. So Paul, he's doing this awkward thing, like two things at once. He's saying, thank you so much for the gift, and I don't actually need it. And that takes some serious skill, if you ask me. Now, don't think that Paul isn't thankful for the gift. He is. He absolutely is. But what's really cool is he's taking this opportunity to, to address something. He wants to take a moment to teach them something that he has learned. Paul wants to take an opportunity to teach them a bigger truth, a bigger reality of what's going on. He wants to teach them something that he has learned. P.S., just a quick little sidebar. The Apostle Paul, yeah, the Apostle Paul actually learned. You know, he wasn't just zapped and then just given all wisdom. He had to learn. I mean, I wish spiritual maturity worked that way. You know, like those annoying pop-ups that happen on your computer or your phones that tell you an update is due. I wish that we could just like click the buttons like, Maturity 7.0, downloaded. <laughs> I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. It takes time. It's a process. And, it, and it, what's cool is that we see Paul, this spiritual giant, he's, he had, he's had to learn something. It's a process. And here he's saying that he has learned the secret. And the question is, well, the secret to what? Well, he says, the secret of being content in any and every situation. And right there, that is so upside down from how you and I work. Right off the bat, we, see, you and I, we are so hardwired to see contentment, satisfaction, happiness, fulfillment, all of these things as a product of our circumstances. Our default mode is to believe our inner contentment 
is dependent on our external circumstances. So notice right off the bat, Paul is saying very clearly something radically different from what you and I normally think. He's saying that his contentment has been untethered from his circumstances. Now, that in and itself isn't the secret. But in order for that to be true, in order for him to be able to say, my contentment has been untethered from my circumstances, in order for that to be true, that required a belief in something greater, a supreme source of strength and contentment that transcended all his circumstances and surroundings. And that supreme source of strength that transcends any and every situation, that, that is his secret. And he wants his friends, the church at Philippi, to know the secret of contentment. And the reason that he calls it a secret is it's because it's something that every, contentment is something that everybody is after, but very few people find. It's one of those things that is so elusive. So before we explore the secret that Paul has learned, I think it's important to acknowledge something from the start. Is everyone, you and I, everyone, has a desire and a longing for contentment. Contentment is not something that it's like, oh, dude, that's fine. That's just for that guy. It's, he's just, he, wants, he wants to be content. That's fine. Um, now, contentment is something that everyone is longing for. It's not just for some people or those people. It's not something that we can just write off as unnecessary and just dismiss it. It's not a big deal. Contentment is something that every human desires. The dictionary defines contentment as a state of happiness and satisfaction. And I believe contentment is at the heart of all of our pursuits, all of our decisions, all of our goals, all of the strategies and the plans that we come up with, all of the, all of the, the decisions that we make from the moment-by-moment moment decisions that we make during the day to the big choices that we make throughout life. At the heart of all of these things is a deep-rooted search for that which will satisfy. It doesn't matter if you're the most ambitious person. It's easy to think, oh, the ambitious people, are, they want it. No, it doesn't matter if you're the most ambitious or the laziest. Everyone is pursuing contentment. If you're the most ambitious person or the laziest person, your end game is contentment. The question is not if we are searching for it, but where are we looking? And the quest for contentment, it can be seen everywhere, especially in our discontentment. So how do we find it? And I just want to hit two popular views that are in our culture that claim to have the secret, although they might not explicitly be stated. These are implicit within our culture. Two views that claim to say they had the secret of contentment. The first one would just be under the umbrella of materialism. And materialism, they say that the secret is more. The core belief of materialism is, that, is the belief that contentment is found in what you have. It's in your stuff, your things, your possessions. It's fueled by a belief that it, if I can just have X and Y, then I'll be content. You know, 
We've been talking about the living life by the when-thens, the slavery of the when-thens. When I get this, then I'll be happy. When this happens, then I'll be content. It's a huge reason why so many people have so much debt. And I'm not up here, by the way, I'm not speaking hypothetically about all this. To be honest, I feel like patient zero when it comes to materialism. Come on, like, how, how many, uh, do I have any Amazon Prime addicts with, in the house today? Come on, how good does it feel to hit that add to cart button? Add to cart. The buy, buy with one click button? It's like therapeutic. Just click a button and like two days later, the box shows up at your door. It's amazing. So, but all day, every day, we are bombarded with messages that tell us that contentment is right around the corner. When we can finally move from an apartment to a house, I'll be content. You know, I'm tired of those used cars. I want that new car smell. If I get that, I'll be content. If I get that raise, if I get that promotion, I'll be able to be content. If I get the right clothes and the right haircut, if I can get, just get my body in a certain kind of shape, I'll finally be content. I never noticed how all of the marketing ads that we're saturated with, they're all tapping into in some way, shape, or form our discontent. We're surrounded with an endless catalog of, of toys and experiences that all try to make us believe that if we have them, we can finally experience contentment. And then add to this that we're all comparison junkies. We, do, we, we compare all the time. It's like, what do you have? Okay, you have that? Okay, I'm gonna get that too. Add to cart over here. Okay, oh, that's great. Where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? Okay, great. Add to cart. I gotta have that. I gotta, oh, he looks go. Oh, he looked great in that. I need to get that. We want, yeah, we, we, we fall into the comparison trap. So it's just, just we're constantly trying to one-up one another. And the thing is, is that when we get any of these things, the feeling of contentment fades. The high wears off. So materialism, it's, it's seductive and alluring, but cannot ultimately satisfy or deliver the contentment to our restless souls. And here's the real kicker. If your contentment is based upon what you have, what happens when it's taken away or it's lost? Circumstances change. Things break. The new car smell fades away. So materialism isn't a trusted source for contentment. Now, there are, are some people who have, who have seen through the false promise of materialism, and they've gone in the opposite direction. And that brings us to our second popular view, which is minimalism. And minimalism says that the secret is actually less. And minimalism is a response to all of the materialism and the lifestyles of accumulation and acquiring things and stuff. And minimalism is, it's more than just, you know, spring cleaning, I'm purging here, I'm tidying up here. It, at its core, it's an attempt to find freedom and contentment. And it's been around in one form or another for centuries, going all the way back to early asceticism. But it's recently made a comeback. You know, Paige was actually recently reading a book called The, the Magic of Tidying Up, something like that. It's a good book. 
she was sharing some things with me, and I was and pro- like filled with a lot of helpful tips and stuff. But there's this one part, I'm, I'm probably misquoting it, but I swear she was telling me that the, the book is saying you, uh, that your socks get stressed out. <laughs> and so you have to be nice to your socks. I like to fold them up into a pill, you know? Like you put them together and you fold them, it's like a little pill. And, but it's like, no, your socks, they're stressed out all day. When you take them out of the laundry, you want to put them away, you want to fold them nicely and, and talk to them and say, you've been stressed, you just need to rest. <laughs> that, that's at least what I heard. Mm. <laughs> And I'm like, Paige, the day that you walk in and I'm talking to my socks, we got a problem. I also remember uh, several years ago uh, seeing people share their 100 things challenge on Facebook. Maybe some of you guys did that. And again, another cool idea. Uh, it's where you, choo- you carefully choose 100 things that you are going to own and live with, and then you get rid of the rest. And what's cool is like, man... It was great for the materialist when their friend was getting rid of a bunch of cool stuff. <laughs> okay. No, but several months ago, I watched a uh, documentary on Netflix called Minimalism. It's actually it's, it's pretty sweet. Uh, it's about a couple guys who grew sick of the consumerism, and they got rid of mostly everything, and then they went around the country on a speaking tour, kind of sharing this new wave of, way of living. And they define minimalism this way. This is on their website. It says, minimalism is a tool to rid yourself of life's excess in favor of focusing on what's important so you can find happiness, fulfillment, and freedom. I think that's great, but that's a pretty bold claim. You know, I'm not here to to knock the movie. It actually had a lot of cool things, helpful things in it, but there was still, at the end of it, there was something missing. It, it was one of those things you watch and you're like, it feels true-ish. It's, it was just enough truth to feel, okay, it feels right, but at the end it was still lacking something. You know, the minimalist is right in saying true happiness, fulfillment, and freedom can't be found through materialism. But in the end, treating any lifestyle change as the key to real happiness can easily be just another form of idolatry in simpler clothes. It's just replacing one idol with another. Instead of having 5,000 idols, I just have 50, or I just have five. And the interesting thing with both materialism and minimalism is that both are focusing on your circumstance, what you have or what you don't have. One author puts it this way. The great irony of minimalism is that while it purports to free you from a focus on stuff, it still makes stuff the focus of your life. The materialist concentrates on how to accumulate things, while the minimalist concentrates on how to get rid of those things. Ultimately, they're both centering their thoughts on stuff. It's like a compulsive overeater and a bulimic. One thoroughly enjoys eating and stuffs his face whenever and and wherever he can, The other eats, hates himself for eating, and then purges it out. Both are obsessed with food. In both scenarios, materialism and minimalism, we are trying to be the one to secure our satisfaction by shaping our surroundings. They're both ways of trying to secure your your own contentment. 
because they're both contingent on what you have or what you don't have. And what we see here in Philippians 4 today is that Paul is saying that the secret to contentment, the secret to satisfaction, it's not about either the material things, getting more, accumulating those things, or, or minimalism, of having less. Materialism isn't the secret. Minimalism isn't the secret. It's something else. So what is the secret? And this is where verse 413 comes in. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, it's not about more. It's not about less. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. If we are looking at the context here, Philippians 4.13 isn't about me being able to do whatever I want because Christ strengthens me. Rather, it's about being content in whatever I face because I have Christ and he will give me the strength to go through whatever God allows into my life. You ever think about that? We like to think that God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I'm sure we've all heard that. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And I don't think that that's true. I actually think God loves to give us more than we can, we can handle. He loves it. What he promises to do is to not give us more than he can handle. And there's a big difference there. And Paul is able to be content in any and every situation because his contentment is not tethered to changing circumstances, but to an unchanging Christ. His heart has been hitched to a love that will never fail. And so I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This isn't a statement of independence and self-sufficiency. It's a statement of dependency on Christ and his sufficiency. And Paul had found such contentment in knowing Christ, such contentment that, that his good circumstances could not distract him, nor could his bad circumstances derail him. It was no longer about what he had or what he didn't have or what he brought to the table. The measure of his life, the measure of his contentment was wrapped up in knowing Christ. And just a little bit earlier in his letter, chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, he said this. He said, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That was the secret that he learned. And the secret was this. His union with Christ vertically it gave him the strength that he needed to face whatever came his way horizontally. And I think making the, the distinction between vertical and horizontal is, is extremely important and very helpful. Because you and I, if you're anything like me, you tend to base your joy, your contentment, your happiness on whatever's happening, all the ex what you're experiencing horizontally. How much money do we have in our bank? how many friends we have, how people perceive us, what others are thinking of us, where we are living, what size house do we have, 
Where are we able to vacation? Where do I work? How is work going? Are people respecting me? Am I getting the respect that I want and I feel like I need? And here's the thing. None of these horizontal experiences are bad things in themselves. They're not. These things, well, the, the, the problem happens is when we expect these horizontal things to satisfy and fulfill. Because these things, these people, the experiences that we have, they were never, ever intended to bear the weight of our identity, of our joy and our security. And as you, and you know this to be true, the horizontal is constantly changing. It's in flux. It's un- unpredictable and always changing. But Paul is pointing us to a greater unchanging reality that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. And he is pointing us to what is true vertically. What is true vertically sets us free from finding our contentment and our identity horizontally. And it's important that we are constantly remind ourselves of what is true. What is true vertically? So what are some of these things that are true vertically? Well, some of you in your Bibles, the next page, Colossians begins. And Paul writes this to his friends there. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. He's praying there for them to understand what is true vertically, that God would impart wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's a lot in there. Something I heard once is that the preaching of the gospel is like bust, is the busting open of the pinata, and the Christian life is picking up the candy. And there's a lot of candy that just was just busted open out of that passage. Look at this candy, strengthened with all power. He's he's qualified us. We don't need to to, to try to qualify ourselves. And using materialism or minimalism or any of those things in order to find a sense of that our life is qualified. Or we've been rescued. Most of our discontent in life comes, we're trying to rescue ourselves by getting things, by, by you know, our, looking at our circumstances, our situations. We're trying to rescue ourselves. He says we've, we've been brought in. There's redemption. There's forgiveness. All the blessings and the benefits of being in Christ are ours. The vertical truth in Christ is where we find the strength to face all of the ups and downs horizontally. The vertical truth in Christ is where we find the strength to face all life's ups and downs, all of the circumstances, the situations that we experience horizontally. And the truth of the gospel 
And by gospel, I mean everything about who God is and what he has done and who we are as a result. All of that is meant to be for us a daily resource. Not just, some, not just a resource once upon a time. I believed that, and I'm just waiting for heaven. No, the gospel is meant to be a daily resource. It's not just once, up, once upon a time good news, but right here, right now. Present tense good news. In our mess, in our season of plenty, it's a resource in our seasons of need and desperation. The Christian life can be described this way. The Christian life is the process of believing, believing over and over again that Jesus is enough. And I love what Paul says in Romans 8. And I believe Romans 8 is one of those passages that you need to put on repeat. Get back to it as often as you can. Listen to what Paul says. Romans 8, we'll start with verse 31. He says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you are in Christ, that is what is true of you. That there is nothing, no circumstance, no situation, nothing that can change that fact. You are fixed. You are attached to an unlosable lover. We have nothing to fear. doesn't matter what happens horizontally. We have nothing to fear. And the question is, do you believe that? Here's the thing. Contentment happens when our hearts are ruled more by vertical belief than by horizontal fear. Contentment happens when our hearts are ruled more by vertical belief in who Christ is. That he is enough. When our hearts are ruled more by vertical belief than by horizontal fear. When we realize that everything we need we already possess in Christ. It gives us the strength to face whatever season, whatever circumstance or situation God has allowed us to face. The fight of the Christian faith is the fight to believe that Christ is enough, that everything you need in Christ you have, no matter what circumstance you face, no matter what situation comes your way, 
the fight of the Christian faith is to believe that everything you need, everything that you long for, your deep down, what your soul needs and what it craves, what it longs for, the fight of the Christian faith is to believe that you already possess that in Christ. That is the secret. And the key to all of this is remembering, is remembering what is true, rehearsing it daily. And one of the ways that we remember is by going to the Lord's table, by partaking in communion, which is what we're going to do here in just a few minutes. As the band comes up, let me just share a little something that kind of, it was cool that stood out to me in the, uh, the text today. It's like a, it's a subtle thing, but it has pretty big implications. So the, as I was preparing, it was like noticing the, the verse 413, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That preposi- preposition in Greek is not through Christ. It's actually in. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. And the question is, what does it mean to be in Christ? And what's really sweet, sweet is that there's this tangible picture of what it means to be in Christ that is given to us in the Old Testament. Back in Exodus 12, there's a story about when Israel was, they were in bondage in Egypt. And the angel of death was going to make its way through and kill every firstborn child in Egypt. And God instructs Moses and Aaron, he tells them, to instruct the people to kill a perfect lamb and to take the blood and put it on the doorframe outside of the house. And then he says, get your family inside of that, of that home and eat the lamb. And what the story tells us later on is that the angel of death came. And all who were inside the home with a blood-stained door would, would survive the angel would pass over that home. And that right there is a, is a perfect picture, a foreshadowing of what it means to be in Christ. You see, centuries after that, Jesus shows up on the scene. And someone looks at Jesus and they say, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The perfect Lamb. Jesus, he was the perfect lamb. He lived a perfect life. His blood was shed on the cross as he died the death that we deserved. And he rose from the dead, guaranteeing our redemption was accomplished. And everything that he earned, everything that he accomplished is given to us when we trust Christ. And when we trust Christ, we are like those Israelites gathered together in a house with a blood-stained door, being protected by his blood that covers us, his blood that hides us inside. It saves us from God's wrath. And all of that wrath was diverted onto Jesus, who was God's firstborn. Think about that. Jesus was God's firstborn who was killed in our place. And so the death of the firstborn in Egypt on that night back in Exodus 12 
That was the final straw that set the Israelites free, free from their slavery, free from their bondage. And it is the death of Jesus Christ, who is God's firstborn, which was the final straw for death. And it secures our pardon and sets us free from our bondage to sin. And that's a picture of of what it means to be in Christ. And this is what we remember when we come to the Lord's table. When we remember that his body that was broken. We remember his blood that was shed and was poured out. We remember that Jesus perfectly met all of God's conditional demands perfectly so that we could be unconditionally loved by the Father. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to go to a time of communion. And uh, we've got tables spread out around the room. And I want to invite you, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you've transferred your trust to him, maybe even today God's giving you the gift of faith. Well, this is for you. This is for you. I want to invite you to go either alone with a friend, with a family, family member, and go eat the bread and drink the juice and remember the sacrifice that was made to bring you home. And if you're still unsure, you're still processing, you're not sure where you stand, it's okay. The story's not over yet. Feel free to You can stay seated and and enjoy the music. We hope that one day you will be able to to join us in this this family meal, this time of remembrance. And so let's just do that. Paige is going to play a couple songs with the band, and I'll be back up here to close.